may be seated. We continue our series by inviting select seniors, graduating seniors, to uh, exhort on behalf of the seminary community. And this morning, we welcome uh, to the pulpit Daniel Svensson. Thank you, Daniel. Good morning. It's uh, truly an honor to be with you. I love Westminster Seminary. I love Westminster Seminary because Westminster Seminary loves the gospel, and it in, indeed is a privilege to be up here to share the word of God with you this morning. Um, be sharing from Hosea chapter 1, so if you'd like, you may go there, Hosea chapter 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea the son of Beeri. During the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her no mercy, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. As far the reading of God's word. Let's bow in prayer together. So Lord, we ask that you would bless this time. We thank you for your word, that it is inerrant, infallible, that it goes forth. May your Holy Spirit attend to it now. We give this time into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. My, how the tables have turned. We have probably heard this phrase while watching cheesy movies not overly given to subtlety. But there is something about that moment wherein the protagonist or antagonist is in a position of disadvantage and something twists. There is a reversal and then he gains a position of advantage. Uh, there is something poignant about that moment. It is a twist of fate, a turning of events, a change in providence, a reversal of fortune. Now, it may not be fortune that is actually the cause of such things, but we have all seen things in our life go from bad to good. We have also seen things in our life go from good to bad and from bad to worse. When it goes from good to bad, we hopefully await the switch back to how things were. When it is from bad to good, we live in worry and fear, wondering when the turn of the tide will swing back the other way. 
No matter the nature of the change, good to bad, bad to good, it never comes exactly when we think it will. The change of situation always gets our attention. It always puts things in a fresh light and gives us new understanding. The book of Hosea is filled with these turns, these reversals. Hosea will often talk about a person, a place, or a thing to communicate an idea and then turn it, up, turn it on its head, pull off a 180 degree turn so that that person, place, or thing communicates just the opposite. We see a few of these reversals in our prophecy before us today and they come to us within the context of a divine lawsuit. A picture of God accusing Israel of their own unfaithfulness to His law and His covenant. This lawsuit comes to us in three stages. The indictment, the verdict, and the execution. Let us look at this passage together. First, the indictment. So the book of Hosea greets us with something that is a bit of a shock. Yahweh commands His prophet to marry a harlot a woman of fornication, and to have children by this marriage. Although shocking upon first glance, the marriage of Hosea to a prostitute is not an arbitrary decision by the Lord, but it is his concrete, tactile accusation against Israel. God proclaims that his reason for commanding Hosea to do this is as the prophecy says, the, Lord, the land has committed gross harlotry against Yahweh. For this reason, Hosea is to marry a prostitute. And so the marriage of Hosea to Gomer serves as an illustration of the covenant relationship between Israel and her God. And because it is to a harlot, it is as if God is saying, your faithfulness is akin to that of this woman. So we may look at this and say, perhaps the use of a prostitute is a bit harsh. Perhaps God is being too severe with his judgment. Upon examination of the evidence, we come to see that it is not harsh at all. Throughout this whole covenant relationship, while one side has remained faithful, the other side has been nothing but unfaithful. Ever since her wedding night, Israel has gone chasing after other gods, as Hosea would put it, after other lovers. From the golden calf to the Baal statue set up in the temple of the Lord, the days of Israel's unfaithfulness have far outweighed that of her loyal obedience. And so God commands Hosea to go find someone who is fitting to remind the people of their own unfaithfulness. A young virgin simply will not do. A wise and righteous older maid would not communicate God's point here. God must reach into the lowest of the low, the bottom of the barrel of society, that ancient occupation wherein a woman looks upon her own body and the gift of sex that God has given to us and exploits both of those for monetary gain. Only the moral makeup of a harlot is what captures Israel's lack of faithfulness to her master, to her husband. Gomer may not have been pleasant for Israel to consider and she may not be pleasant for us to consider this morning. But how much worse would it be for Israel to look into their own hearts, into the depths of their own soul and see the filth that lie there? And this is God's purpose, for He wants them to know something of how their sin looks to Him. You see, if we consider Israel's sin, their spiritual harlotry against the God of the universe, we see that their sin is even worse than Gomer's. 
And if God were to pick a character out of this world to illustrate our faithfulness to Him, how faithful we are to His law, would He really pick someone much better than Gomer? I think if we are honest with ourselves, we look down into our hearts, into our own sin. We know that God would probably pick someone similar to Gomer for us. And so when considered, Gomer's betrothal to Hosea is most fitting for God's purposes. So what is to become of this unholy matrimony? What use does God have for this not-so-civil union? The children that Hosea uh, names here communicate God's verdict upon his people. The marriage has been the accusation, and now we see the naming of the children, and that is the verdict. The first child is to be named Jezreel. Now the name Jezreel would evoke in the Hebrew mind uh, some positive thoughts. They would think of God sowing or God planting. Uh, It would normally be thought of in a positive light. In Judges, uh, Gideon won a great victory for God's people by defeating, defeating the Midianites in the valley of Jezreel. And this victory confirmed for them that God really was going to plant his people in the land of Canaan to allow them to have and take root there. But there was another episode regarding Jezreel and Israel's history, and that is what is brought before us here in this prophecy. In 2 Kings, Jehu executed judgment upon Ahab and all of his house. Ahab had set up false gods and false idols, and so God commanded that he be judged. And Jehu did this, but the problem was that right after that, after Jehu had executed judgment, he set up idols to the same false gods. And so false worship was replaced with more false worship. And God says that on account of what happened at Jezreel, He is going to judge Israel here in the prophecy before us. And so we see the first of these reversals. Jezreel normally evoking positive thought. God says now He is going to judge Israel on account of what happened at Jezreel. So this word is one of future calamity, justly given because of Israel's rebellion. What once brought assurance of God's action in planting them in the promised land now reminds them and is a pointer to something terrible. God sowing judgment rather than blessing. What once meant God's provision now is an infelicitous omen that assures them of impending doom. We may be tempted to think of Israel as an exceptional case, as a group of people that are uncharacteristically rebellious. This is, of course, not the case. Ever since the beginning of our race, we humans do not have a good history of faithfulness to God's commands. We could think of our first father, Adam, who was banished from the Garden of Eden because of his disobedience to God. As he sadly journeyed out east of Eden, that wonderful place that was his home became a torturous reminder of his failure to heed the words of God. Certainly we can look at ourselves and see the same pattern. We see the wonderful provision of God in our lives and our ability to pervert and distort the very things that He gives us. What begins as a reminder of God's goodness becomes a painful memory which we try to block out. That friendship that was such a source of joy deteriorates because of misunderstanding and pride prevents a seeking of reconciliation. That marriage that seemed to be the foremost sign of God's goodness to you sinks into a life of animosity and strife. One where even if you live under the same roof, you are both slaves to your irreconcilable differences. We all have this problem. 
God gives us the good, and we return with the bad. He lays before us a feast, and we wait for the scraps that come after the meal. We have a seemingly innate ability to ruin what God gives us. And Israel is a prime example of this. But insofar as they show their unfaithfulness to God and to His covenant, they are simply a microcosm of humanity in general. They are no special case. They were then what we are now and what we will continue to be. And so God continues pronouncing his verdict in the names of the next two children, which are not any more reassuring. One is called no mercy, and one is called not my people. This third child would especially hit the heart of the Israelites as they heard it. God names him not my people, which is truly tragic, for from the very beginning of the nation, the calling card of Israel has been that this God has been with them. We can think at the beginning of Exodus when Moses is standing before the burning bush and the Lord commands him to go to the most powerful leader in all of the world and command them to let the Israelites go. And Moses says, what do I say to him? What can I bring? I'm not powerful. I ran away from this nation 40 years ago. I can't speak well. And the Lord says, tell him I am has sent you. Tell him that I am with you. Again and again and again in the Old Testament, what do we see? We see that promise, God saying, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And here in Hosea, we see the exact reversal of that. The Lord says, you are not my people, and I am not your God. The verdict has been given. The sentencing looks bleak. God means it when he says, I will destroy the house of Israel. See, God put enjoyment and rest and flourishing in front of them. He promised it to them. He said, be faithful, obey, and I will give you this. But now God takes away his offer of rest. And in a very different way, he says that he will put them to rest. Israel has stood in God's judgment. And they have been found truly, utterly, and hopelessly guilty. And this puts them on exactly the same plane as everyone else in the world. For Israel and everyone else can be known as covenant breakers, as not the people of God. Such a verdict demands the execution of a sentence. Such guilt can only give way to the worst punishment, or at least one would think. Because in the passage before us, the inevitable season of retribution is not the time upon which the prophet's gaze rests here. God did judge Israel in the form of exile, But his judgment was not final, and instead in Hosea, the Lord chooses to tell us of a sight unseen, an unexpected twist of fate that is out of accord with the verdict just pronounced. You are not my people, and I am not your God. So the words have come like a dagger to the heart, yet they are followed with an announcement that no one could have seen coming. And it will be that the number of the sons of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered or counted. What has happened? Where has this happy announcement come from? The prophecy of a time of blessedness comes in the midst of an expectation of an announcement of total annihilation. We expect to hear that God will wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Instead, he says that they will be more numerous than the sand of the sea. And this is exactly what ought to grip us about this prophecy. For only the dissonance created by the threatened curse could make the sound and the harmonies of blessedness sound so sweet. 
It is exactly when danger and terror stares us in the face that we are grateful to be rescued. So it is in this passage, and it must have been for Israel. Right when we expect the worst here, we hear of the best. And the same is true in our lives. When we hear the threats of the curse of the law levied upon our hearts and our sin, we hear the mercy of God ring through. But the wonder is only furthered as we progress through this promise. We go on, and it shall be that in the, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. The place being talked about here is one we have already seen in the passage. At the end of the prophecy it says, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel, that place that initially was positive and God reversed to be a negative. That place that was the center of the curse now becomes the central hub of God's blessing. And a place named Jezreel is the perfect place for a dramatic reversal like this. For a name evoking the thought of God sowing or God planting reminds us that while it is God's prerogative to speak the curse in light of sin, it is certainly then solely his prerogative to promise blessing in spite of the curse. And so in the midst of the realization that this God is just, comes the promise that the same God is one of grace. And his grace extends beyond those who fall in the bloodlines of Israel and Judah. For God is going to take from the mass of humanity, Jews and Gentiles, to make for himself one new people. The New Testament apostles cite exactly this passage when working out the problem of the New Testament church being comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. In Romans 9, the apostle says, Has not God called from the Jews and also the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. The Apostle Peter cites the same passage in his letter, speaking to a Jew in a Gentile church. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. But how does Hosea say that this will happen? In the passage, we hear a divine whisper of a coming king. We are told that God's people unified together will set one head over them. Hosea is alluding to a king who will come in the future, but he will be obedient unlike Ahab, unlike Jehu, unlike Jeroboam, and so many more. That divine whisper is speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, our Lord Christ went down to Egypt and he came back up. He was driven out to the wilderness, but resisted temptation, faithful at every place where Israel was unfaithful, and faithful in every way which we could never be. After his time of trial was finished, he rightfully ascended to a, to a throne in the heaven of heavens, and his reign now is the reclamation of David's kingship. He has restored the fallen booth of David, and we all, Jew and Gentile, can look to Christ as our coming and exalted king. And so, we preach this message, this drastic turn of events, this wonderful twist of fate, that takes place in the lives and hearts of men and women, elders and children, who are called to have faith that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ is coming again. 
And that in the face of the curse of the law, God reaches out his hand and gives mercy and grace to the same heart wherein there was only condemnation and guilt. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Let us give thanks to our risen and exalted Davidic King. And by the word of his power, may he make his people more numerous than the sands of the sea. And may we realize that such a twist of fate is rooted in the eternal purpose and plan of our sovereign, loving, and gracious God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel, and we thank you for the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, who sits now enthroned, who is our coming and exalted King. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you would make this word effectual in our hearts, that we may live a life in light of what he has done for us, that we may go forth and love one another the way that you have called us to love. We give thanks to you, O God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Copyright 2014, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.